In the year 2001, uh, I began uh, to have a, a really deep sort of love affair with tea. Um, not black tea, um, not chai tea, uh, oolong tea, as a matter of fact. Um, so these green leaves, uh, mostly, that come from sort of Taiwan and China, um, these people would uh, lay out these green leaves on these, uh, often it would be like a metal grate, you can imagine like a metal sort of grate, um, actually usually stacks of them, and they would lay them out in the sun. And the sun baking them um, would actually allow for the leaves to oxidize and become almost a little not burnt, but kind of cooked a bit. And then when they were perfectly oxidized, somewhere between something like really 5% up to 85% oxidized, whatever that means. I just know that's what happens. I don't know what that means. Um, uh, then they're sort of rolled up really tightly, usually into little balls uh, or sometimes like uh, wrapped um, like a joint or something. Um, I don't even know what that looks like. I just, I've heard words about it. Um, anyway, um, uh, whoever clapped, uh, you should confess some stuff later. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so I got really into this oolong tea stuff, and I loved it because this guy I worked with owned a tea shop, and he was traveling to China. Um, he also worked with me. I didn't work in a tea shop. There was like two jobs. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, stay on track. Okay, um, so he uh, would go to China and buy all these. Uh, he'd buy tea leaves in bulk. He would go to these, uh, apparently they have them, like um, national tea competitions, and, and sort of the best teas would be voted on, and he would buy the best types of each kind um, and ship them back in containers to his tea shop and sell them. And when he went one year in 2001, I said, dude, because um, he told me this story, I said, would you buy me the, the, like the best tea set that they use that year? Because here's what happens. Every year at this, at this uh, world championship for tea, um, somebody's tea set gets used to taste all this tea. So they use the same exact tea set for all the different kinds of tea, because they, they want to make sure there's no variables other than the tea itself, right? And so somebody said, so, so, I, so I got this tea set, and it's beautiful, right? He, yeah, I paid like 80 bucks for it, um, and it's all hand-painted. It's very beautiful, and you put the leaves in here in hot water, not boiling, just shy of boiling. You don't want to burn the leaves, okay? Um, you let it steep somewhere around 40, 45 seconds, depending on how much you like it. Uh, and then when you're done, you sort of tip the lid back just a little bit, and you pour it into this cup, just like that. Uh, it's ready to go. You don't want to let it sit in here, a little oversteep. Uh, and then you pour it from this thing into one of these little cups. And, and this, in 2001, uh, was the tea set that was used at the World Champion. I mean, not the one. It's like the model or whatever. Uh, it, no, it was the one. A uh, lot of people drank out of one cup. Um, so, um, uh, but but this, this is the one that won. And it didn't win, and they don't win because of this thing. They don't win because of this thing. They win because of this thing. This little thing. Because this is what you actually drink out of. And it's so interesting to me, right? Like I look at this cup and I look at these and this isn't hand painted. This is much simpler, much more humble. Um, and it's still, I actually haven't had any of this. I, I fell in love with coffee after tea um, and so I haven't gone back. Um, but from years ago, it still smells, I can still smell oolong tea in it. It's great. And I've, you, you don't wash this with soap, y'all. Um, but, but you do wash it still with sort of hot water or whatever. And, uh, but it's built in such a way that the color of this is supposed to allow you to see the color of the tea really well. Um, you want to be able to smell it, so it's built in such a way that when you put this in your mouth, your nose actually goes right into the cup, and you can smell it. Um, and you want to be able to sip it. A little bit of oxygen as you sip it uh, actually helps bring out the flavor. Um, and you want to sort of let it ruminate a bit, and the cup feels warm after you drink it, and you can smell the cup afterwards, and then you can pour another cup and go again. Well, this is the set that won. And the reason it won... It's because, this is the reason it won, and this is the reason they win every single year. It's because the cup doesn't get in the way. Because at a world tea competition, the point isn't the cup, right? I mean, like, if it's the best tea, nobody cares about the cup. What they care about is the tea. Which tea is the best? And the reason this one wins is because, and I, I don't know how tempting it would have been. I mean, this, this guy or girl who made this sort of hand-painted every other little thing on here, and you'd want to sort of throw a logo in the bottom, right? Or nose goes here or something. There, there's like a little uh, thing at the bottom underneath here, but you don't see that when you drink it. And that's kind of the point is that when you drink tea out of this, the cup disappears. And what you're only thinking about, what you, all you think about is the tea that's inside of it. And I kid you not, you drink the same tea out of something other than this, and you will notice more of the tea in this. It's very different than say, I didn't bring my other coffee cup up here. I got this sweet coffee mug that my wife got me. Uh, and on, uh, it's, a couple things are great about it. Uh, the coffee does actually taste better um, in it because it's got the sort of rolling lip, uh, which allows you to sip and smell it a little bit better, which brings out the flavor. Um, not like I know anything about this, but um, cup's a little bit smaller, which I like because by the time I finish it, the temperature hasn't dropped too much and I'm ready for a new cup. That's great. Uh, but, uh, but it's really cool because like on one side it says, ah, 
And that's how I feel when I drink coffee. It's also how I feel when I just hold a coffee cup. So it feels very honest. Um, and then the word ah sort of traces around to the other side and it's like a pencil that had written it and the sort of the introvert in me is like, oh my gosh, I just want to read and write and carry it around. It just makes me feel great. The whole thing feels great. Here's the problem with that coffee cup. Okay, when I go to Chats Coffee, which I, I frequently visit, Camp House, Cadence, and Chats, anything that starts with a C, I think, pretty much. Uh, hard or soft C, doesn't matter, just a C. Um, and uh, when I go there, most people that work there sort of know I'm going to come in with some coffee, coffee mug. I, I always bring my own coffee mugs, um, mostly so I can leave with a cup and take it with me. Um, and then it's just too cold, like in 15 seconds, uh, and I get mad and microwave it at the hub, and it smells like popcorn because nobody's cleaned out the microwave in forever. Uh, it's probably on me. Anyway, um, again, I'm digressing. Um, but here's the problem with that coffee cup. When I go to Chats, and Chats Coffee, uh, I'm not kidding, Chats Coffee, the house blend at Chats is the single best coffee I've ever had in my life. Okay, it is the best. There is not a close second. I've had lots of coffee in Seattle. I've had lots of coffee in Portland. I've had, I've had lots of coffee in lots of places. I know that, there's, that the, the tendency right now is to make citrusy, sort of acidic coffees and all this, whatever. The house blend at Chats w- w- is ridiculous. Um, and you'll fall in love with coffee if you've never had it. It really is that good. Here's the problem with my coffee mug, and this is why I'm saying it. I go into chats with my coffee mug, and everybody goes, oh my gosh, that's such a great mug. And there's a part of me, every time somebody says that, really, there's a part of me that goes, that's right, it's a great mug. Uh, And then there's this other part of me, it's a little smaller, but it's there, and it says, but the coffee is so good. We're not in a mug shop, we're in a coffee shop. Stop talking about the mug, it's the coffee that's so good. And good coffee like that should go in a mug that you can taste the coffee really well in. It's actually um, not by surprise. It's shaped almost the same way that Chats uses the black and white coffee mugs that they serve. Sometimes you guys give me one. If you guys are back there, I think you are. There was some cheering. Give me a coffee mug and something other than the black and white ones. And I don't know why because those ones are better. Um, But just for future reference, I'll bring my own anyway. But, uh, but, But that's the problem with that coffee mug is people pay attention to the mug, not the coffee. That's why this tea set wins. Because nobody actually ever drinks tea out of this and goes, man, what a great cup. They drink tea out of it and they go, wow, that tea is awesome. Tonight, um, the reason I'm using this, and it's sort of a, if it hasn't come up, it's sort of a metaphor. Um, My hope is that we would all be humble, like this little Chinese teacup, in order that the world would know that our hope is because what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. That what fills us is where our hope lies, not the container that holds our hope. But I think that there's something that keeps us from doing that, and I think it's our unwillingness to break and to suffer. We try so hard to take care of our cup, to make it look pretty. We don't want the container of our lives to look like this. We'd be so much more content if it was something ornate like this, but not just ornate, right? If I threw this on the ground right now, it would shatter. And most of you spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to make sure that you will never shatter. And I think what God is asking for us to do is be something breakable, be something humble, be something little, be something small, so that when the world sees why you have hope, they don't think it's because of what's on the outside. And for as much as you try to take care of that cup, you are limiting your ability to be the very place where God's hope resides. Let me pray for you and for me, and we'll talk. Uh, Father, um, I know what's coming, uh, and I pray that your spirit would be at work right now in the hearts and minds of everybody in this room, including me. Uh, Father, you know, you know more than anybody in this room because you search the depths of our own minds and hearts, and our own hearts are deceitful, and we don't even know ourselves fully. You know how much energy we expend, how much effort we put into trying to make sure we never break, and that we are not fragile. Would you please um, help each one of us to see the truth in our lives, what's working and what's not working? I pray that your spirit would convict each and every one of us um, to be willing to share in the sufferings of Christ so that we might also share in his glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, This is a really hard time of life, college. Uh, 18 to 24, 18 to 25 year old range is pretty tough. Um, Every, uh, I think every age has got probably its own unique difficulties. I'm sure if I could remember it, birth would have really sucked. Um, 
I'm sure. Like, I'm sure it would have been an absolutely terrible experience. Um, my, my, my old age, I'm sure, is when your body is just breaking down and you need people to help you. And, um, and especially in our culture now, where it's really unique in our culture. This, is, this, this isn't um, been the norm throughout history, but youth is championed and the elderly are often looked at with utter disrespect and, and, and uh, sort of new technologies and innovations, like you're now the expert, not the 80-year-old, and that's really topsy-turvy in history. Like that just hasn't happened before. So that, there's got to be some challenges in that as they're facing death with young people um, running life, uh, not caring at all about that. You know, I mean, that's got to be sort of have its own challenges. I know that I face certain challenges now. I'm 16, probably 16, 17 years older than most freshmen. Um, and, and I have young kids at home and, and I'm married. And there's certain challenges that come with that that are pretty unique um, that college doesn't have. My son is six years old um, and, and he, he comes out of his room some mornings and quite literally says, Daddy, my legs hurt. Why? And I said, growing pains. And it's not a metaphor. That's like a real thing. Like it's a real thing. Like his legs actually hurt from growing. Uh, it is a metaphor for you, uh, probably, I hope. Kali, if you're still growing, uh, sorry. Or maybe not. Maybe that's, I don't know. I don't even know if that's a good or bad thing. Um, so great. Uh, we'll assume it's good. Um, but college, I think, does have sort of some unique, um, unique challenges. And it's not because what you, I don't think it's because what you face, nobody else faces at any other time of life. I think a lot of what it is, is it's just that everything that you've depended on up till now is sort of up for grabs all of a sudden. And sometimes it's not external. Sometimes it is. Like, I mean, external stuff, maybe, you know, maybe for some of you, uh, like I, I never sort of had this illusion, but for a lot of college students, the college is sort of the time they realize their parents aren't perfect. And that's a real, I mean, for those of you that grew up in super uh, volatile families or from divorced parents at a very young age, or maybe even your parents were divorced, but like you still just really idolize one of your parents, you sort of get into college and you start realizing dad doesn't have any friends, mom's codependent with me, you know, like they don't like each other, like whatever those stuff is, and that's hard to deal with. You've probably most of your life, if you're in college, most of your life, you've probably had some idea of what you want to do and it's changed probably every couple months, that's fine. But all of a sudden you're in college now and you can be like, I don't know. I don't know. I've trusted that the next step system that's carried me from cognition through now, okay, one, two, three, four, like that ends sometime and there isn't like a next step. And so this sort of causes, can cause in many of us sort of anxiety about like, holy cow, my whole life, ever since I've been aware, somebody has told me what to do next and now I don't know. So all the faith and trust that I've had in the system is starting to, to sort of be undermined and that's, that's compounded by the fact that, you know, less than 25% of most college graduates are getting a job in the field of their study right now when they graduate. That sort of erodes it even more. Or, or, uh, many of you, maybe, maybe, hopefully a lot of you are told really positive, wonderful things like you could do whatever you want with your life. This is the time you realize you probably can't. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know if I could actually do whatever I want with my life. I really want to be a creative that has utter freedom and makes $150,000 a year. And you start realizing somewhere in college that's probably not exactly the, 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 uh, the possibility that's laid before most of you in this room. And then there are internal things too. Friendships don't often work out like we thought. We start realizing sin patterns in our life that we didn't realize before. Your, your brain is actually growing, especially if you're a freshman right now. Your ability to think abstractly is just now starting and you're starting to see connections you've never seen before and some of it's causing problems. You're starting to see holes in the makeup of the universe and in your philosophical underpinnings that you never saw before and it's driving you insane. You don't know how to answer all the questions that are being thrown at you. And I think all of these things happen to a lot of people. I just think it's just so saturated when you're 18, 19, 20. All these things just happen at once and it's where do you, who do you trust? Where do you trust? Your parents? You know they're not perfect. The institution that isn't guaranteeing you what, it, what you think it was supposed to promise? The government? No, you probably, most of you didn't vote. You know, I mean like, sorry, it just statistically. Uh, I'm not like judging you, but, well, anyway, um, but so we just lose sort of so much, you know, I think trust in this stuff and it all happens at one time and my heart breaks for that. And I think what's really hard is I think underneath all of it is this great fear. It's not just that everything I've trusted and everything I've known is sort of has cracks and sh or just seems a little more frail than it ever did before, but it's this fear. What if it all breaks? Like, what if it breaks? Who will I be? 
What will I do? So we're anxious and frantically trying to hold it all together. And what I see is that we're despairing because we know we can't last like this. You know, it can't, you can't live at this kind of pace with these kind of thoughts, with this kind of anxiety, with this kind of depression, with this kind of worry, with this kind of busy franticness. For the re- you know, that's not a sustaining pace. And I think in the midst of all of it, what most people want, and in this word, you could use different words, but for the sake of our, our text tonight, the scripture, I'm gonna stick with this word. Uh, I think what we all just want is to be comforted, just a little comfort. What happiness, peace, something like this, right? I'm just going to use the word comfort. <laughs> um, I think that's probably a fair word. We want to be known and loved. We want, we want to be comforted in that. What's keeping us from this? What's keeping us from being comforted in the midst of all of the decisions that you're making and all the revelation that you're having and all of the studies that you're doing and all of the relational tinkering that you're experiencing? What's keeping you from being comforted? Why can't many of us experience the comfort we so desperately long for? That's what I'm addressing tonight. The sermon series is called Widen Your Hearts. And the reason it's called Widen Your Hearts is because Paul gives that advice to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. Chapters 2 through 6 is what we're sort of honing in on if you want to read it um, on your own. Um, This is at least Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians. We we don't have letter one and three, um, but this is at least uh, his fourth. Um, And he's writing to them. He started this church, lived with them for a couple years. Uh, And if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, what you'll find is he has a very sort of tumultuous relationship with them. Sort of undermined by them a lot, hurt by them a lot. In 2 Corinthians, he actually says he's writing this letter instead of coming to them because last time he saw them, it was so agonizing and he doesn't want to burden them or him again. So he's going to write them instead of go. So he's writing in this letter and he has a tough relationship with them, but he keeps having these hard encounters with them for one particular reason, because they don't want the gospel that he's preaching. That's why the encounters with the Corinthians are so hard. They do not want the gospel that Paul is preaching. Particularly, they don't want the life that he's living. And here's why. Would you put up uh, 2 Corinthians 11 for me? I want to read this. So this is Paul, um, and, and he, he's, he, he get, he's sort of picking up steam in 2 Corinthians 11, and he gets to this point just before all this where he's like, oh, if people are going to boast, I'll boast. I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Pharisee. Like, okay, and he starts going, and he, and he actually says, I'm speaking like a madman, word for word, speaking like a madman. Because he's just trying to tell them I'm being facetious. I'm, I, I'm not actually boasting right now, but if you want to play that game, let's play that game. And he goes into it, and he moves into saying something like this. And this is Paul's account of his own life for a minute. Listen to this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That uh, uh, means rocks. Um, Which to me, for whatever reason, that image sticks out to me more than others. Because, I mean, I want you to imagine. I mean, Paul... Paul was um, on his knees in the middle of a circle of, 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 Jew, of Jewish people, his, his peers, um, on his knees while people picked up fist-sized stones from about this far away, and they threw them at his head until they thought he died. I mean, if you can imagine going through that. Not just having stones thrown at your body like that, but, all, but, but, but he lived through it, which would probably be worse than dying in it, you know? Like he had to wake up at some point. Uh, and he goes on because he's not done. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. My, my inflection's probably ruining it, sorry. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, There is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, how good of a sales pitch is that? Because Paul says to the Corinthians in the first letter, he says to them, or technically it's the second, whatever. Anyway, uh, Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians, um, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Did you guys read the list of stuff he just went through? Why would anybody want to go through what Paul went through? This is the kind of life that he lives, and he says, hey, Corinthians, you should be like me. That's a terrible resume. And it's an absolutely terrible sales pitch. And the reason he says these things, and you should see these tied together intimately, 
is he says, I only long to preach and to know among you Christ crucified. If we're gonna talk about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, I'm gonna talk about him crucified. I'm gonna talk about your king, the one that you're following, the one that you profess faith to, the one that is your master, the one that you are saying, oh, in our culture today, uh, which has only really started since the 70s, he's my personal savior or he's my friend or I have a personal relationship with him. Uh, Fine, we'll talk about Jesus, but let's talk about him hanging on a cross, bleeding and suffocating to death. For the sake of sin, that's what I wanna talk about, Corinthians. The king on a cross, who wants that? (laughs) The Corinthians want a different kind of life. They don't want that kind of life. They want a comfortable one, like a safe one. One without beatings, for example. And don't we want the same? That's not bad, right? I mean, we, we don't want, who would want those things? Are we not fighting for this all the time? Arranging our lives in such a way, there's suffering right there. Right there, there's gonna be suffering, so I'm gonna go this way. I think that there's rejection over there, so let me stay back over in this, this way. Let me stay over here. The one thing we want, comfort. In the middle of all of it is eluding us, though. That's what's crazy. We fight for it, fight for it, fight for it by protecting our lives, by keeping ourselves away from suffering and pain and tragedy as much as humanly possible. We, we, we try so hard to keep away from those things, to not let things break and fall apart. I see a crack and I quickly pull out super glue and duct tape stuff but comfort just seems so elusive would you read second or put up second corinthians 1 3 through 7 for me paul says this at the beginning of his letter to the corinthians and um this is sort of his thesis uh, for the whole letter um he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by god For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. He's talking here, um, the we is, is who he's writing with and who he would have visited with. And he's saying we, Paul and my friends who want to visit you, Corinthians, okay? He says, if we are afflicted, excuse me, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul wants the Corinthians to experience comfort, but he says here, and in the opening of his letter, he says you will only experience this comfort if you experience sufferings. That's it. If you endure patiently in sufferings, then we can share the same comfort. Corinthians, you want the comfort that I have? Let's endure the same sufferings together. And this is the thesis of all of 2 Corinthians. So, hey, Corinthians, I want you to share in our suffering. So now, now, now that I said that, widen your hearts. Open up. Let it happen. Open up. Let the things that you hold dear be willing to shatter and break. Because you will never experience the comfort of Christ if you do not share in his afflictions. And he goes on to say this, 2 Corinthians 4. We'll stick on, we'll, we'll sort of hone in on this. For God said, let light shine out of, dar- God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure that's the treasure. The treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have that treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. That's why we have this in the jars of clay. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Can you just leave that up forever? Thanks. Um, appreciate it. Uh, so, so Paul says that he has this treasure. He and his friends have this treasure. You could even probably read into this that he thinks that the, uh, the Corinthians may have this too, that they, they have this treasure. And the treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
In other words, the treasure is that we know God because we know Jesus. In the face of Jesus, I have knowledge of the glory of God. That's comforting because that's a treasure to Paul because if we can trust that what we see in Jesus is truly what God is like, if we can trust that, then I know that the sick and the broken and the despairing and the brokenhearted have hope. I know, I, I know Jesus went after those people. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And if that's really what God looks like, then, then, I, then I would consider that a treasure. And Paul does too. I want you to uh, do, me, uh, do me a favor and do an exercise that I hate when everybody else asks me to do. So if you want to be super rebellious, you don't have to. Uh, but close your eyes. Uh, and I want you to imagine something. And I want you to try to picture it with as much um, detail as you possibly can. The, the richer, the better. I want you to imagine that you're walking into a room with 10 to 12 people you know. And you're walking into that room with God. And he's in the flesh. And I want you to imagine that you're going to have dinner with God in this room at this big rectangle table with 13 seats I know one side's going to be uneven that's okay what do you guys talk about what's the conversation like at that dinner table are you saying anything are you asking anything are you keeping your mouth shut Where are you sitting at the table and where's God sitting? What's the atmosphere like? What kind of noise is in the room? What kind of food's on the table? I know, I know for some of us, we imagine sort of sitting in one corner definitely not at an end of the table at a corner and God's at the far end and we're not saying much I don't know what else you're imagining but, uh, but if if in the face of Jesus we actually see the glory of God then I could tell you what would happen at that dinner God would walk in and he would get on his knees probably first he'd give you a hug and be super pumped that you're there. And you would feel, by looking at him and by his touch, you would feel so unbelievably welcome. You would feel like that place is your home. And he would get on his knees and he would start washing your feet. And he would say something like, well, the first needs to be last. Of course I'm gonna wash your feet. That's, I mean, that's the kind of thing you would do at dinner because it's the kind of thing you did at dinner. And if you imagine something else, then what Paul's saying is not true. We have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We no longer have to ask anything like, what is God like? What does he like to do? Who does he like? What does he like to talk about? How's he gonna respond to me? What does he say when I pray? What does, he, what does he think when I X, Y, and Z? You don't have to ask these questions if we see the glory of God and we have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But Paul says in this verse, Paul says that, the, that this treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, it, that it's placed in a very particular, it's put into a very particular place. That, in, that, the, that the knowledge that gives hope and, and can produce comfort, it's placed in a jar of clay. It's placed in something humble and fragile and unassuming. Nobody would ever see this. Somebody would see this in my cabinet and they would never pull it out unless it was sitting next to this. They would never by itself pull it out and say, man, that's awesome. They would say, what is this, a teacup for ants? You know, I mean, I don't, uh, something like that, right? They make fun of it. it doesn't, there's nothing impressive about this thing. And Paul is saying that the, 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 the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus is placed into something humble and unassuming, a jar of clay, an earthen vessel, this common everyday thing. The light went out, just FYI. 
but the light of the knowledge of God and the glory, the light of the, light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus is shining into my heart, so we're good. Man, that was a long joke. That was a slow burn. Uh, anyway, um, but my point is that, that God is placing this treasure in those kinds of things, and I think that's precisely the opposite of the kind of vessel, the kind of container, the kind of jar, the kind of cup that we're trying to make all the time. It's precisely the opposite of what you think you need to be if the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus is gonna be inside of you. Why must it be like this? Why does God place this treasure into something like this? He says, is that still on to you? Okay, yeah, that's on. Uh, so that... The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you read your Bible, you're going to see that kind of language come up at almost every single juncture. So that people place their hope in God and not something else. So that you don't think that the reason I have any comfort in God and that I have peace in the midst of conflict and that sometimes when I'm perplexed, I'm not driven to despair, so that you aren't willing to think it's because of my circumstance. It's because, well, Jason has this gift, or Jason has this job, or Jason has this family, or Jason has these, no, God is saying, no, Jason, I want you to look like this and to live like this so that everybody sees your life and says, that's gotta be because of God, because he is, if God can do that with Jason, he can do it with anybody. And I see this transition happening. I hope I continue to see it happening in my core group even. I remember telling the guys my, last year at some point in my core group, they're sophomores this year, um, or I'm in their core group probably is probably a more accurate thing to say. Um, but they, uh, I remember telling them, guys, I only really have like two or three things to say. Um, and I'm just gonna keep telling you those two or three things like all the time. Uh, and, and I think that they sort of laughed and thought that was kind of maybe cute or like humble or something, I don't know. There will come a point when they go, oh, he really means it though. He actually really isn't, doesn't have much to say. He just keeps saying the same things all the time. Um, and, and I think God intentionally will do something like that. Because God forbid they ever think that they have to be like me to experience comfort and peace. No, they need the surpassing power of God. They don't need to be like me. They don't need my circumstance. They don't need my history, my giftedness, my job, anything else, my knowledge, the book that I read. They don't need any of that. And if they look long enough at my life, they're gonna see, yep, there's really nothing that impressive there other than the fact that God has loved this man and decided to work through this man. Look at what he says next in this passage right there. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I imagine the Corinthians, and, I, and we too, are terrified of these kinds of things. Who wants to be crushed? Driven to despair, forsaken, destroyed. I mean, aren't these the kinds of things that we, we, we sort of organize our life to make sure we don't have to experience and enter into? We avoid these things. We plan around these things. We move for something other than these things. These are things that happen to clay pots. These are things that happen to jars of clay. These are things that happen to, to, to 25 cent coffee mugs at a thrift store. They're chipped and then thrown in the trash. They're left when people move because nobody wants to bring that with them in the new cabinets. That's, we don't want those kinds of things for our life. We don't want to be like that. We want to be strong and safe and protected. Paul, it's really cute that you say you're afflicted but not crushed. I don't want to be afflicted. <laughs> You're perplexed, but not driven to despair. I don't want to be perplexed. But based on every kind of statistic you can read, my experience walking with a lot of you, you don't have comfort in the way you're living. You're avoiding affliction and perplexion and persecution and being struck, but you're finding no comfort What we need to see, friends, is not God protect us from affliction. If, if that's what you think he's promising, you're not gonna trust him because every single one of us in this room is experiencing some kind of affliction. Every one of us has. And if you think that's the promise of God is to keep you from death, sorry, 100% guaranteed. 100%. I think I should say 100%. have to say it. Sorry, I can't stop myself. But if that's what you think God is 
promising, then he's already failed at keeping you from affliction and keeping you from suffering and keeping you from despair, those sorts of things. I think what we need to see is that God is bigger than affliction. Like, like what, what if, what if you could experience what Paul's experiencing in that? Corinthians, this is why you're not experiencing comfort because you keep thinking that the jar of clay, that the little cup, you keep thinking that this is what matters. Make sure this doesn't get crushed. Make sure it doesn't get destroyed. Make sure it's not forsaken. Get a job. Get a girlfriend or boyfriend. I will never be comforted until that happens. If only my parents hadn't divorced. If only I didn't struggle with the things I struggle with. If only I had what this person over here had or didn't have what this person over here doesn't have. Then, then, if, if the container that's supposed to hold this hope would just be fixed in this way, if I could just be, just, just tarnished, like, like polished a little bit and built up and, 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 and made more beautiful and more strong and more, more whatever else, then I would finally, I think, have the all-elusive comfort that I desire so bad. Circumstance, 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 circumstance. That's what we're talking about, all outward circumstance. My hope is built on nothing less than circumstances. That's not what the hymn says, but I wonder if that's the way we think. Paul would say to the Philippian church, I have found the secret to being content. And he didn't say to be content because I, I found the right set of circumstances. This job, this kind of friendship, this kind of social environment, this social, this like social group that I'm in, this sort of book that I'm supposed to read, whatever. He didn't say, he said, I found the secret to being content in all circumstances, which means his contentment has nothing to do with circumstances. So if you think what Paul is addressing is, well, he, he, what he's done is, you see, he spends like quiet time with God or, or like he travels around as a missionary or whatever. I don't know what you do with it, but it's not a circumstantial thing. It's contentment in the middle of all circumstances. But we keep worrying about the, the circumstances. We keep worrying about the jar of clay. What this container within which God wants to put this treasure, what does that look like? My clothing, my food. Money, job, security, safety, no hurt, no pain, no suffering. Make, if I keep it together, then I will find comfort. Oh, that some of you would let your circumstances suffer in order that you would know that you're not measured by them. You are worth more than your circumstances. You're worth more than your grades. You're worth more than your last name. You're worth more than your romances. You're worth more than your lack of romances. You're worth more than any social kind of status you could ever have. But you keep trying to find your worth in all of those things. The Corinthians were worried about who had what gifts. They were worried about who belonged to what friend group. That was a big deal. How do they identify themselves socially? That was a massive deal for the Corinthian church. No, 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 we're in this club. No, we're in this club. One group actually said we're in Jesus' club. They actually said it. First Corinthians chapter one, you can read it. They actually say we're in Jesus' club and Paul's like, oh my gosh, you're so worried about these external things. Your hope is in all of this other stuff. They wanted to be fat and happy. That's where their hope was placed. Really, they were worried about who had money, who had gifts, who had social status, under what teacher did they sit? They follow this preacher, not this preacher, that sort of thing. And Paul comes at them and they refuse to let any of that stuff crumble because they thought that in those things is where they were going to find comfort and identity and peace. We too do such things. We're afraid of being rejected. And so we stay away from places where we could be rejected. We're afraid of our questions not being answered and so we don't ask them. We're afraid that we won't be loved if somebody really knew us and so we don't ever take that risk. It's, it's smaller things too. We're, we're afraid that we don't have a good voice so we don't sing. The cup, the jar. I'll find comfort if I just keep it safe and don't let anybody hurt it. There's, a, there's, two, there's retreats coming up this weekend, y'all, and I know some of you, 
not, maybe not all of you, but there's some people in this room that aren't gonna go or haven't signed up for a retreat. And, and I, I identify with the fear and I'm not trying to be patronizing about any fears. These are real things. You're afraid that you, if you go on a retreat, you're not, you're not gonna know anybody, which is precisely the reason why you should probably sign up to go on a retreat. But you won't put yourself in a place to experience what you really want because you're afraid of something shattering or breaking or hurting. We do this all the time. By the way, if you're not going on, on you, should, you guys should consider going on the retreat. They're pretty cool. Uh, but uh, and if a logistical reason is keeping you from, is that a word, logistical? I'm sure it is. I'm making it up if it's not. Uh, if, if that's a reason why you can't go on the retreat, I'll take care of it. Like if it's money, somebody will pay it. If somebody says I'm not going because of money, I will pay for your retreat, okay? Then you'll have to mow my lawn sometime, but whatever, we'll take care of that later. Um, but, but I mean, for real, if there's a reason why you're not going on the retreat, will you please just really consider it? I, I, I mean, I, I, if some of you go on missions later, I have this, this is way tangent, but I think this is funny. So sorry, I'm, I have the microphone. Uh, but um, for mission trips, like every single mission trip, somewhere between three and one week beforehand, every single person that signs up for a mission trip thinks it's a terrible idea, every single one. I think without exception, uh, every year. Um, and in one year, the most extreme thing I heard, which was hilarious, and when you're in the middle of this, you really do believe this stuff. Somebody didn't want to go on a spring break mission trip because they thought they had too much laundry to do. They had raised a bunch of money, and they said, you don't understand. And I was like, are you for real right now? And they're like, dude, I have a ton of laundry, and if I come back the last day, I literally have nothing. And, you know, and the next day, of course, they were like, that was weird. Uh, and, you know, but, but, like, but that, that kind of stuff comes out when our fears are at stake, Right? Because what was at stake wasn't really the laundry. What's at stake is, oh my gosh, there's a whole week where I'm not in control. And this guy all of a sudden came to this moment and he couldn't even realize it because our hearts are deceitful. That like why he didn't want to go is because he didn't know what would happen if he was out of control and he was afraid. And because we're afraid, we hide and we protect and we seclude ourselves. We kind of corner ourselves off and we watch stupid movies on Amazon or Netflix or HBO Go or whatever. And we just, we just, we just hide away from the world and hope it'll all go away. And we don't experience any comfort. And the same problem that happens this week is gonna happen next week and then week after and the week after and the week after. And we're gonna wonder why God, why God won't you give me the comfort that you promised? He has promised you comfort through affliction. You'll never know the comfort you want until you risk, until you widen your heart, which is terrifying. Until you open up and allow some of what's shattering in your life to break. It might not. You just don't even know how trustworthy some of this stuff is until you let it break. You have all of your energy trying to hold something up and you don't know what would happen if you just let go. It might stand actually. It might fall, but man, I tell you what, if you're, if you're meaning for life, if what it means to be a good human, if what it means to be happy, if your understanding of your friendships or your romance, if all of that is just a house of cards, then for the love of God, will you just let that thing fall? It's not going to give you any lasting hope anyway, so knock it over. See what happens. I know that you probably doubt that God can do it, can bring you comfort in that. But you'll never know until you allow him in. And I, I, I said this in the, um, that we, we, uh, you guys are all invited to this, by the way, but beforehand on Tuesday nights at 7.20, 7.20, is that what time we pray? 7.20, there's a thumbs up. Thank you, Jacob. Um, we, I totally know. I was just testing somebody. Uh, at 7.20, we pray every week. Um, there's a group of us that pray. And, and uh, you're more than invited to pray with us um, every week for, for the house and for the night and all that stuff. Um, but uh, I mentioned that one of the things that I'm concerned about right now is that there's only three weeks left before Thanksgiving the Thanksgiving week. And Thanksgiving week, you guys have class Monday. Do you even have class? You have class Tuesday. You don't have class Wednesday, right? Okay, so if you're a UTC student, at least you have class Monday and Tuesday, that's it. And that week's just sort of a weird anomaly. And so I've sort of in my mind, I'm going, y'all have three weeks left of something like what you're going through now before everything changes for two weeks during Thanksgiving and finals and all that stuff. And then everything changes again when you have like five weeks off or whatever until school starts. And the thing I'm concerned about is that some of the stuff that some of you are going through now you're gonna say, if I can just hold out for three weeks, if I can just not let this get crushed and broken, if I can just make sure that this stays intact until finals are over. And quite frankly, it's just until finals begin because you, you, you'll procrastinate so much and, and get so little sleep and eat so unhealthy during finals week that you won't be able to think about anything else, okay? So, so really, it's just until finals start. And you're just going, I just don't let this break until then. 
And one of my concerns is I'm going, you have three weeks. You have three weeks right now to begin to discover the comfort of the living God. To try him at his word, to see if you share in his afflictions, will you also share in his comfort? What would it look like if you didn't run from those things in the next three weeks, if you embraced them? Let him show you how he can keep you from failing and how he can keep you from despair. There is a way to live where we can be afflicted in every way and not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Wouldn't that be an amazing way to live? If you knew that when you're, you were absolutely perplexed, when you didn't know how to make, uh, your, you didn't know how to discern your left from your right, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what job I'm supposed to get. I don't know what major I'm supposed to do. I don't know who I'm supposed to hang out with. I don't know where I'm supposed to live next year. I don't know what I'm supposed to do for the summer. I don't know what I'm supposed to, blah, 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 blah. When you're perplexed and not knowing how, how great would it be if you knew? You knew. I'll never be in despair, though. How great would it be if you knew that when you were struck, you would never be destroyed? Really? There's, there's a kind of like, I see this happen with my little kid when he gets into one of those inflatable things. Those like the, the big jumpy things, you know? Like all of a sudden he gets, the, I mean, he's crazy. He starts doing absolutely absurd things in there because he knows that he, there's a limit to how much he could get hurt in there. You know what I'm talking about, the jumpy things, whatever, I don't even know what they're called. And probably the word would make me feel silly saying it if I did it. So, uh, but like, but he gets in there and he starts acting crazy and silly. When he wrestles with me, it's the same way. I love this. I really, there's a part of me that, that, that for as much as I struggle feeling like a good dad and, and being a good dad, because a lot of times I'm very terrible as a father. Like one of the things that I, I praise the Lord for is that when my son wrestles with me, he has no fear. And I love it. And because he has no fear, he does crazy things that hurt me. Like, he jumps off things that he would never do if I wasn't near him. You know what I mean? Like, he treats me in a way because he knows that I am not going to hurt him and I'm going to keep him safe and I will catch him if he falls. And I've had times where I haven't done that one time. I kid you not one time, y'all. Like, I picked him up and I threw him to put him on my shoulder and he literally just went over, landed on his head on slate. Okay? Like, it was terrible. And of course, because this is so crazy what it looks like for a little kid. I mean, can you imagine how humbling this is as a dad, okay? I turn around in tears because I've just thrown my kid from six feet onto slate on his head. I turn around and he's going, Daddy, hold me. And I'm like, the one guy that shouldn't be holding you right now, you're asking him to hold you. Like, it's so crazy, right? But, that, but I'm, I'm using that just as a picture of like what it would look like if you could trust God. If you could trust that you could be perplexed, you could be struck, you could be persecuted, but you don't have to worry about the end game and all that. Wouldn't that be a great way to live? It starts, I think, by knowing that your great high king has gone before you. He asks nothing of you that he has not done himself, nothing. You might struggle to believe that. That's the truth. He asks nothing of you that he has not done yourself. The writer of Hebrews actually says, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in every way. He knows us and he's now acting on our behalf. He did not, Jesus did not run from the affliction before him. He didn't hide. If you remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he did not want, in a crazy, mysterious thing that for a Q&A, this would be a great conversation. I'd actually really love to sort of uh, just be an absolute geek if somebody wanted to talk about this sometime. Uh, but, um, uh, but in a crazy mystery, Jesus is on his knees in the garden praying and so anxious, anxious. And he's casting his anxiety upon the Father. And he's so anxious, he's sweating blood. And he's so anxious that one writer actually said, one theologian that I really like, and this is, this is pushing, uh, pushing some limits here when he says this, but the fact that somebody could even say this, he says, for this one time, he's actually somewhat afraid of the Father, so he asks his friends to pray for him. The scripture doesn't say he's afraid of the Father, okay? The guy's pushing limits. But there's something strange going on when Jesus, this one time that he goes by himself to pray, doesn't say, would you all pray for me while I'm doing this? And here he does. And he doesn't want what's before him, he says, but he says, not my will, but your will be done. But I'd rather have you take this cup. 
this cup from me. Jesus doesn't run from his affliction. And he doesn't run from his, he doesn't run from his affliction because he doesn't really, like he really wants all of his affliction. That's not the story that we have. That's not the testament from the people closest to him. He did not want what was before him and he went in it anyway because he trusted that, if, that he would experience the comfort of God as he went through the affliction. He was afflicted for our sin, which is different than why we're afflicted. He asks us to enter affliction for our comfort and for other people's comfort. For other people to know that there's a God more powerful than affliction. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My prayer is that you would all ask God what it might look like to carry around in you the death of Christ. (laughs) This language. In order that the life of Christ might be manifest in your life and body. That's a different language, but isn't that kind of what, those of us who call ourselves Christians and we struggle to know the comfort of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that sort of thing. Isn't that what we want? We want the life of Christ, the power and the life of Christ to be manifested in our bodies and in our life today. Wouldn't it be awesome if you can go to bed tomorrow night and you can say, what, what, happened, what happened today? Man, the life of Christ was manifested in my life. Now, if you said that, people would be like, what? But you know what I mean, right? Like that, isn't that what we want as Christians? Paul says, then walk around being given over to death all the time, carrying in your body the death of Christ. Do you not want the life of Christ to manifest in your life and body? Then come. Come, weary sinner, and cast your anxieties upon him. Come to the one who is broken for you, that he might lead you into the only brokenness where you can find peace. And that's into his. My hope is that you would cease from all the pointless fighting and striving for your own comfort when he has so much to offer. And tonight I want us to, to, to together um, begin by remembering what he asks us to remember. He asks us to remember his death until he comes again. That's what he asks us to remember. How does Jesus ask you to think about him? He says, remember my death until I come again. Remember Christ crucified. That's what he says. On the night he was betrayed, it's, uh, he's sitting at this table with his friends. One of them was going to betray him, and he sat there anyway. If you want to know what Jesus is like at the dinner table, he lets even those who would send him to his death sit and eat with him. And he picked up a common loaf of bread after he gave thanks, of course, but he picked up a loaf of bread and just common bread, nothing special about it, just bread. He broke it after he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me every time you come together. In the same way, after supper, he picked up the cup, which is just a common glass of table wine. We'll be talking about uh, whether it was real wine, I guess, next semester (laughs) at some point. Picks up this glass of table wine, and he says, in the same way, take this cup. This cup represents a new covenant poured out for you in my blood. A new covenant. A new covenant, a new promise poured out for you in my blood. And do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what he said this night. And, and it's... it's it's really, really a crazy scene because what happens after this, he had just washed their feet. And then he says this. And Christians have been celebrating communion, Holy Communion, Communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, for 2,000 years. That very night, sort of after dinner, they walk out. Jesus says he's going away. The disciples freak out, ask him a bunch of questions. He brings him to the garden. He asks them to pray. He prays for them first, and then he prays, goes off by himself to the Father. He has eight, or eight of the disciples because Judas took off to, to sell him for the cost of a slave, 30 silvers. Uh, and so took eight of the disciples that were left and, and had them here and brought three more, James and John and Peter, and brought them a little closer to him because they were closer friends of his. And he asked them all to pray and they kept falling asleep and he's praying. And at some point in the middle of that prayer, uh, after, well, actually it's right after Jesus gets up, he says, come on, my betrayer is coming. That's what he says. 
And he walks and these guys come to arrest him. Inevitably, he'd be crucified. Um, but after that scene when Jesus was um, sort of taken, so Peter gra- grabs this sword and cuts off the ear of this guard named Malchus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. And he heals Malchus's ear right there. Peter probably, Peter always gets juked. He always just makes dumb decisions, I guess. And uh, uh, so he's got to be feeling weird at that point. But Jesus, as Jesus gets taken away, one of the gospel writers actually says all of the disciples left and fled from him. They left him. He said, this is the new covenant that I have for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my brokenness for you. And they all left him and they gave up. They didn't know then what they were to discover a couple days later. But he was able to tell them to remember his death because he also told them, he showed them that he has power over death. And right now, while there's so much brokenness and sin in the world, while there's so much pain and suffering and death in the world, it is not the time, it's not the time for a Christian to sort of close their gates and say, well, I'm God's and I'm getting what's mine. He says, no, remember my brokenness. Remember how I came for you. Remember how I poured out my life for you, always. Always. The surpassing power over death is in his brokenness poured into you. There isn't, there isn't, and there never has been a clay pot, a jar of clay, a little teacup that has been more fragile and more humble than Jesus Christ. Never has been. And there's no place that the glory of God has been more manifest than in him. And we who call ourselves Christians, which just means little Christs, what do we mean when we say we're going to follow him? During that same night, he says to his disciples, in this life, you will have troubles of many kind, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And the crazy thing is he overcomes the world by breaking again and again and again. And by his church breaking again and again and again and sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Breaking for others. Laying down our lives for our friends like our Savior does in order that we might experience comfort. Friends, if you do not experience the brokenness of Jesus, if you do not experience the affliction of Jesus, you will not experience his comfort. So I, I pray tonight as we take this, as you come forward, if you want to know how to do it, it whatever, everybody does it different, I guess. But uh, we'll have two groups right here. Um, I guess it probably makes sense if you guys come down the middle and then just go back down the outsides just so you don't bump into each other. But you can do what you want. You can come crawling up for all I care. There'll be a, uh, somebody upstairs too. Just rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, uh, and then eat it uh, after that. Um, anybody who's in Christ is welcome to come forward. Anybody who's in Christ. If you don't know Christ this way, uh, staff, you, staff, you guys can come on forward and do this in a sec. Um, if you don't know Jesus in this way, don't do it. Like, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not in him, don't come forward. You're, you're just gonna undermine the integrity of this. It's gonna be this weird religious ritual that you feel like you have to fake in front of a bunch of Christians. I, I hope nobody judges you, and if they do, then God's gonna judge them. That's what he says. So um, instead, I'd encourage you to pray and wonder what this is all about, and um, there'll be a couple people in the back who are willing to pray for you during this time. Um, So we'll share in communion and uh, the worship team will come forward and lead us in the end of the night. Um, my encouragement to you is this and I'll, and I'll pray. But if we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. This is the promise for all of us. Let me pray. Father, um, that's hard. It is hard, God, to believe um, before we experience your comfort in any way, it is hard to believe that you're gonna be faithful in comforting us in our affliction um, because we don't experience it anywhere else. I pray like I did at the beginning of this night that, that your spirit would give people the courage to face their fears, to take risks in the places where they hold back, and to look for you, to see if you are able to bring life out of death, if you're able to comfort in the midst of affliction, if you're able to keep us from being crushed and, and, and destroyed and forsaken. And I pray for these people in the room that they would not um, go through any of this alone. I know that your spirit is the great comforter and counselor. Uh, would he also 
move people into intimate relationships with one another, into places where we, we respect um, and hold each other's lives with dignity and care. As we eat this bread and drink this cup too, would your spirit help us to remember your son, crucified, broken for us. And may that be an invitation for all of us to know that we too can rise from the dead in any of our afflictions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.